on you. What's up, everybody? It's your boy, KJ5 to the 2. You are in the mix or something like that. This is the uh, story time of Uncle Tweezy. I've got a friend on the phone that goes way back in, in the history, uh, probably responsible for, for unleashing this, this terrible idea on the music industry known as KJ5-2. If there's anybody to blame for my current situation, <laughs> the man on the other line. Uh, this is Mr. Todd Collins, a.k.a. One-third of the Goatee Brothers, a.k.a. Uh, the Cleese, a.k.a. T.C., <laughs> a.k.a. T-Sizzle, T-Diddy. Did I miss any? Yeah. I think you, you probably created some at this point. I think I made some of those. So uh, let's just dive right on in. Um, let's, uh, I think it'd be, it would be remiss to not jump into some of your history. Uh, so this, this podcast is really all about storytelling. And uh, mm. you have way more history than I ever have in this genre. Mm. Uh, we do share a lot in common, which is kind of ironic. You being a Plant City boy, me being a Tampa boy. Yes. But uh, let's take them back to a little tiny town in Florida known for strawberries <laughs> and basketball. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Plant Sizzle. That's where you're from. You're from yeah, Plant City, Plant correct? Plant Sizzle. Plant City. Plant City, Florida. I uh, Yeah. I was... Uh, I grew up in Plant City, Florida from the time I was in sixth grade. Um, a, uh, my father was the music minister at the largest church in the city. He was also the mayor. So I was uh, literally, <laughs> literally under a microscope all the time. <laughs> I couldn't do anything wrong. Yeah. Um, so, or I'd get in big trouble. Anyway, I, um, yeah, man, Plant City was a good little, uh, I'm glad I'm gone, but. It was a good place to, to grow up. It was, uh, well, I was kind of in a fishbowl. I was a big fish in a small pond. Uh, played basketball at, at Plant City. Got a scholarship to play down at Barry University uh, in Miami. Now, now how does a, uh, a uh, melanin challenge individual such as yourself wind up playing basketball and then wind up doing music of all things, doing <laughs> Christian music of all things, and then... On top of that, being responsible for probably one of the most influential groups of our time, one of the most biggest uh, influential labels, uh, Goatee Records of all time. How in the world do you wind up from a town known for nothing more than their strawberries to Nash Vegas? That's a, that's a really valid and a good question. Um, the only thing I can set, tell you is in the, uh, the cesspool of country music in Plant City, my dad had nothing but old soul records, so I and he was a uh, he was a professional musician growing up. So I had nothing but old soul records and um, funk records, seventies records is what I grew up with. So I, I mean that was all I knew um, at the time. When I was eight years old, I started playing drums for, in church. So, but none of that was ever like a career path. I just was good at athletics. Started playing basketball, was the only white kid on the team from the time I was in junior high until I was a sophomore in college. So I didn't know I was white, um, didn't want to be white, you know. Everything in my world was was urban and and black and every, I mean, I'm, you know, I, I thought I was, I thought I was uh, un-melanin melanin challenged, so to speak. <laughs> Um, so how do you so jumping forward though? How do you wind up going from Barry University in Miami to Nashville, 
and then winding up as DC Talks dancers. <laughs> one of their dancers. <laughs> so I wasn't that melanin challenged then if I was a dancer, <laughs> right? Um, right. Exactly. That's actually that's actually a good story. Uh, I was I, I had graduated from college, used up all of my eligibility in basketball, and I went from. Um, Went from playing basketball to I was going to be a college coach. I wanted to be a graduate assistant, and I wanted to be a basketball coach from there. So what I did was I started on my graduate program, and um, so that's that's where it kind of started. So growing up in, in church, I had a best friend that was uh, a pianist, and he had gone on to play in a group called Truth. They're kind of the Christian menudo. Their 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 turnover <laughs> their turnover is like once every six months. You know, it's it's always you know it's it's a it's a Christian group and it's a branded a truth. But there's tons of people. Natalie Grant was in Truth, for example. So I mean, you know, it's a lot of people come and go through that through that pipeline. Um, he was the piano player for Truth, and since when I graduated, he had gone from Truth to started producing records in Nashville and um, we were best buddies. And he said, Hey man, why don't you come up to Nashville before you get completely entrenched in your um, master's program, just come up and visit for a while. So I was like, all right, you know what? I've never been to Nashville. So I went, spent two weeks up there. And during the process I had, you know, through Christian or through music at church, I had done a lot of, obviously drum playing, played bass on some stuff, was really into like drum machines and, you know, again, black music oriented type music. And um, I got up there and I ended up playing and singing on the record for the whole two weeks. Caught the bug. He, he bass. What record was that, by the way? It was um, uh, Nathan DeJezer. He was a, 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 a pianist, kind of like a Dino Karsanakis on star song records um this was back in 1989 i'm showing my age so uh i basically caught the bug moved up there and and literally within a week met uh met toby we hit it off and i literally started working it was one of those things where you know i've been with you before where people would come up to me and ask me and say hey how do i get into the music industry i haven't I'm not the right guy to ask because I never went through a, a, a struggle period. I mean, everybody does, but I, you know, I immediately kind of got in touch with the right people and started working immediately. And that's kind of the, so, so what Toby, what uh, DC talk album was this that you like within a week was already executive producing. <laughs> <laughs> um, God is doing it. Get out here. Doing that, isn't, that, isn't that your voice on there or one of those? Your, your yeah. voice is in there. Yeah. Isn't it? Isn't the course. Okay. Yeah. So super old school Christian music slash Christian hip hop heads will obviously not know that maybe may not know some of the, the, that stuff from way back then. And obviously I think, I think unfortunately I think Toby doesn't get the, uh, the acknowledgement for what he did for the genre back then. Cause you know, people might've looked at it as being, too soft or too pop or too Christian-y or whatever you want to call it. But I think you would probably be the first to attest that you needed stuff like that in the church when they weren't accepting, you know, Christian hip hop in its most, or hip hop in its most yeah. undiluted form. Yeah. And, um, I remember you, t- I, I remember asking you about that cause I was right around the time I came to Christ. And obviously I didn't know who you were. We didn't meet till years later, but 
I remember, you know, someone giving me a DC talk song or a CD or something like that or hearing it and going, this is just too pop for me. Like I had come out of public enemy and third base and like way more militant, you know, mm-hmm. hardcore rap. As did I. And, 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 and I was like, well, this, is this what Christian rap is supposed to be? Not that I was like outright rejecting it. It just, the sound of it wasn't appealing to me, but I also noticed that it made inroads in the church where the music that I was into was not. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you know, the church accepting Christian music on any level was in its infancy in the 80s. And I remember you sharing something with me, basically saying that you guys sort of strategically planned that, knowing what you were up against. Mm-hmm. That's right. And uh, I remember Toby saying, you know, way years later when I met him, essentially saying, you know, he wanted to be a bridge builder. Mm-hmm. And... Well, I, there, an interesting story that I tell as part of my, actually as part of my testimony, whenever I speak to churches occasionally, um, I tell this story. Um, as you alluded to earlier, uh, I came from the old school of EPMD, Run DMC, um, you know, Eric B and Rakim. That's what, that was all the stuff that was really, uh, hitting hard at the time we were working on things like New Thing. Yeah. And, for that whole period, for a long time, I remember telling Toby, Toby, man, this stuff is too soft. This stuff is too soft. Let's do stuff like Run DMC, like Sucker MCs, or, you know, let's do a beat like that and just put some some Christian lyrics to it, blah, blah, blah. And from him kind of brushing me off, one time he looked at me, and he I ne- I'll never forget, he said to me, he goes, you know what, man? We can't do that kind of stuff. I would love to do that kind of stuff. But what we have to do with this market and with this genre being so young and up and coming, we have to earn the right to be able to do what we want to do down the road. Hmm. And that to me told me, I was like, at at that point, the light turned on for me and I said, okay, I get it. We've got to give them a certain amount of what they need and what they want for the church to be able to earn the respect and the right to be able to do things like Jesus freak and supernatural or whatever it was that we wanted to do down the road. And that's spoke yeah. volumes. And it's interesting to say, here we are all these years later, he still has obviously an active career. Yes. Uh, you know what I'm saying? And, 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 and now where Christian hip hop is, is probably where you guys dreamed of it being 30 years ago or whatever it was. Exactly. So there is something to be said about, you know, making sacrifices on the front end to, benefit on on the back end so to speak and and that's funny because that'll actually elude me into the next conversation which is really something you shared with me so really i I wanted to focus on this podcast i definitely gonna have you back for a part two or part three on some of the albums Mm -hmm. but really what i wanted this podcast to be about is how i got signed because obviously you were a major part in that um Mm -hmm. how i got my first record deal etc etc and uh and that's what people ask me still to this day. Like, how did you break in? How did you get your record deal? How did you get your start? Yeah. And just like you said, there's no like one easy answer, but there is at least I, I can pinpoint a timeline mm-hmm. uh, of when things were happening. And you were actually on the other side of that. So, yeah. um, so just to jump ahead in your history a little bit. So obviously you connect with Toby. <laughs> and you're not mentioning the fact that you were a dancer with cross colors on and <laughs> one, one, uh, one. <laughs> strap off on your cross colors bib shorts they sure but were <laughs> this is why it's an audio podcast and not a video podcast uh thank god <laughs> so uh you went from uh some some background producing uh to da- background dancing 
to then, obviously, you worked on some really seminal albums with him, amongst other projects, but I think, mm-hmm. obviously, to my listeners, they would know Free at Last, which honestly was the first DC Talk album that really got my attention, because in my humble opinion, it was such a phenomenally produced, produced album. Um, the amount of samples that you guys stuck in there and did not get sued for <laughs> is nothing less than, a, than an act of God. I know. But uh, I thought, like, Free at Last was the first time I really was like, I get this. You know, like, the yeah. songs... It all worked for me, even still being come from a hardcore rap background. But flash forward a little head, you obviously still worked on more of those albums. You played drums on Jesus Freak, is that correct? Correct, yep. And um, you were part of that. So, and yep. then what year was it when you guys started Goatee Records? 94. 94, okay. So the Goatee that is around today, I know you, you are not a part of it, but you know, Goatee Records was obviously a huge... Uh, I don't know, a pioneer in bringing legitimate, relevant music to CCM. Mm-hmm. You know, signing groups like Grits, Reliant K, um, Sonic Flood. Yeah. Um, Johnny Q Public, Jennifer Knapp. Johnny Q Public, Jennifer Knapp. I mean, these are obviously major artists that had major impact, who are still, a lot of them are still going today. Obviously, don't want to forget about John Rubin or, uh, yep. you know, now in the most... Late latest incarnate uh, Jamie Grace, yeah. Um, but long story short, obviously you were a part of Goatee Records. You were one third of the Goatee Brothers, correct? That was you, correct. Toby me, and, me, Joey, and Toby. Yep. And just even a sidebar, you guys at a time where this was not popular or not <laughs> not the hot button topic, did a would you say quasi rap album as a yeah. race? Yeah, it was it was a uh, a, a hodgepodge, an amalgamation record <laughs> of a lot of stuff. Yeah, it was, it was based that, off of hip hop. Yes. Okay, so I did. I don't think that record really got enough respect for for what it did from a production standpoint, or even from a just a, a socially conscious thing. But the the idea behind the record was erase to erase racism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Correct. Correct. Yes. And, and, and um, it's, it stood for eliminate racism and create equality. That's what we called it. So that was what, 97-ish? Uh, 96. 96, okay. Yeah. So that's funny that you would say this because 96 is technically when I first met you. However, I didn't meet you. Mm-hmm. I was simply in the audience thinking that you were a very arrogant person on stage. <laughs> yes, and I probably was. <laughs> So let me let me paint the picture here. In 1996, I went up to what was called GMA, which was Gospel Music Association Week. I went up there literally with nothing more than the goal to get a record deal. I was just fresh out of college, and uh, I had my demo tapes, literally tapes, in my hand. And I went to one goatee night uh, music showcase where a one Todd Quentin Collins <laughs> Quentin. was hosting. And I remember you had a puffy jacket on. I'll never forget this. I don't know why I remember what you wore. You had a... You had your hat pulled down low. You had like a Marty McFly vest on, like a Marty McFly puffy vest. You know what I'm talking about? I think was, so, yeah. Like what Marty wore in, in 85. You had one of those vests on, but it was like like a, like a bomber kind of jacket with no sleeves on it. And <laughs> you just was like, yo, yo, this is TC. Welcome to, to Goatee Night. I Okay, hold on, hold on. Was that inside or outside? Was that it was the one inside. we did? It was inside. Okay. It was inside. It. it was in a club. I know which one you're talking about. And I just remember thinking, like, this dude is really feeling himself. Like, all right, cool. Maybe I won't give him my demo. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I don't know if I knew you were one of the three Goatee Brothers. Well, I met 
Joey outside. He was really, really nice. And obviously he took my demo and nothing ever happened at that. But the point is, that was like my first experience with the Todd Collins. My second experience was a mutual friend that, uh, that I had been kind of sharing Christ with who was part of the hip-hop scene in Tampa. He used to run a, a magazine called The Hive. His name was Russell. And uh, you had played football with him, ironically. Yep. And uh, so it was a weird, and I started, I was like, dang, I wonder if this guy is a Florida dude. So let's flash forward about two more years forward. I'm a youth pastor. Uh, I'm just finishing up my first album, which would eventually become 7th Avenue. And at the time, I was really praying about what to do next. And I kind of felt like, man, you know, like I need to, I need to get a record deal because a record deal would open up more doors to like, you know, to do what I want to do, which is obviously hit the road and share the gospel and all this stuff like that. And so I had all these grandiose ideas and I took the money and I had talked about this in a previous podcast, but I took the money that someone had given me and rather than producing the music, I actually just made the album and mm-hmm. ran out of money. <laughs> and um, this is where I, this is where you start to come in here is I had, I had done a song with Tehran from Grits, uh, who was nice enough to do a track with me before I was signed. And I felt like, well, if I can send this demo in to Goatee, someone will have to listen to it uh, because they'll have to approve the song. Yep. So come to find out that all the demos just got thrown into a corner. I find this out later. All the demos get thrown into a corner and some intern comes through them. That's exactly right. (laughs) And it was a big cardboard box. I'll never forget it. And uh, I, I, I had been talking with the A&R goatees, and it was Mike McLaughlin who had given me a fake cell phone. He had given me a fake voicemail number yep. that I was continuously leaving voicemail messages that no one was ever listening to. Correct. So all this I had no idea. So anyone that's out there with the idea of getting a record deal, forget it. <laughs> it's the worst idea you could possibly do. Um, so here I am on the other side of, the, of, of, the, uh, of, this, of this thing going down, and I never forget, you know, just really feeling like God was speaking to me very clearly saying, you need to be obedient. I'm not going to open up any door for you until you're obedient to what I told you to do in the first place, which was to press up your music and give it away. So on a wing and a prayer, I sent it off to get pressed up, having no money, making seven fifty an hour as a youth pastor, like in inner city Fort Myers. And um, I'll never forget, it was almost two weeks to the day that my Primeco cell phone rang as I was sitting in my tiny postage stamp apartment, my new newlywed wife, uh, <laughs> the phone rang. It was a 615 area code, which I knew was Nashville. And uh, I think we were eating fried chicken. I remember this clearly. I don't know why I can remember the fake details that have no importance. But on the other line was this baritone sounding voice. Hey, yo, this is Todd Collins from Goatee Records. Can I talk to KJ? Yeah. <laughs> and I freaked out. I couldn't I've never gotten a phone call like, "Hey, I got your demo. I I'm the president of Go I'm one of the, you know, owners of Goatee Records and uh I want to and it was like you went right to the point. You were like, "I want to come down and check out what you're doing." Yeah. Is that so that's yep. that's how I recall it being like dream fulfilled on my end. Can you yes. fill in the fill in the gaps on your end? I was <clears throat> the the three of us, Joey Toby and myself in at that time we had an office in Franklin. We had just moved to Franklin and um, our office was already too small. So Toby and I, instead of having an office to ourselves, uh, each one having an office, we had basically like a little 
I would call it like a little living room where there was no desk. It was just, it was just sofas and chairs and a, a listening area where we could listen to stuff. I was hardly ever there because I was always in the, um, I was always in the studio at that time. Toby was hardly ever there because he was always on the road with DC Talk. So people would listen, you know, they would use our office as a listening room. Well, we had a couple of interns and one of the interns we had assigned to listening to certain things. Just, you know, occasionally going through some demo tapes, see if anything was there. We actually got your demo tape, come to find out, because of the Tehran thing which was a really clever idea in retrospect. <laughs> um, we went, uh, and so uh, I happened to be passing through the office because I had a meeting with Joey. And he, and, and the, the intern happened to be playing that song. And I walked past there. I kept walking, almost walked out of the door uh, uh, to, to the office. And I turned around, I was like, wait a second. That's Tehran, but that's not a grit song. I realized that I realized I knew who the voice was, but I didn't recognize the music because obviously Grits was doing everything. You know, obviously everything was on goatee, so I knew all the music stuff. Anyway, I walked back in there and I was like, "What is this?" And so obviously they said he said I don't even remember who the intern was now, but he I said, gotta find that guy. I know, right? Um, <laughs> he said uh, this is a this is a demo of a guy named KJ52. He's blah, blah, blah. I said, where's he from? He said, well, this guy's from Florida. I thought you were from New York because you had this, yo, son, yeah, when you do this thing, you're going <laughs> to jump off, son. You know what I'm saying? And I was like, but I was really into the East Coast hip hop, real, like, almost ghetto style genre of hip hop. And that really spoke to me. So I was like, let me have that thing. So he get he gave me the tape, gave me your uh, wrote down. Evidently, it was either already written down or he wrote down your contact information. And I literally went into my car from the uh, from the office and immediately called you that day and uh, and said, "Hey, listen, I don't know what it is. I get a ton of demo tapes all the time, but there's something about yours that I like, and I want to see what you got going on." And it was kind of, that was kind of the impetus behind the whole thing. At that point, I didn't have a trip planned or anything, but I just said, hey, I want to come down and see what you're doing. And I think, what, was it a week or two weeks after that, that I was down in Tampa talking to you yeah. in a parking lot? It, I, I do remember it went really, really quickly. Now, I was still working at the church at the time. And while this seemed like the culmination of my dreams and the culmination of what I've been praying about, I had also been down this road so many times with, yeah, the industry that I was not going to one tell anybody. <clears throat> I told my wife, obviously, but I was like, I, outside of that, I didn't tell anybody. And mm -hmm. two, I was like, you know what? I just didn't feel like, you know, it's Jerry Maguire. Show me the money. You yeah, know? And not literally show me the money, but like, I'm not believing anything until I see a contract. And so yep. I remember you saying something to the effect of, "Hey, can you tell me when you have some shows coming up? Um, I'd like to come check it out." And I and I was like. That's sort of a that's a pretty pretty big show of confidence if you're willing to fly down mm -hmm. to to do this. And so 
I think I remember I, I had a, like two or three shows on the weekend coming up. One was in Tampa. One was in Fort Myers where I was at. And then that might have been it. There might have only been two back-to-back. But one was at a hip-hop church called Crossover. Yep. And another was in a parking lot of my church. And I kind of felt like that would be a great way to go. This is how you can really see what I do. And then I really, honestly, I was I was doing so much with inner city kids. I kind of felt like I was really turned off to Nashville because I felt like they just sucked up the ministry and spit out nothing. Like mm-hmm. just became this artist. And I kind of felt like it was important for you or whoever to see what I was doing to know that this is a part of me too. Mm-hmm. And um, which was impressive, by the way. So it, it was an interesting. It was an interesting time because I'm I'm literally ready to burst. Like with excitement, but at the same time, I'm like, I got to play this cool because there's nothing's guaranteed in the music industry. Yeah. And, um, my, my question to you was, or to, to you is, was that your normal process for checking out an artist was like, a, we like the music and then B, I want to see what their character is or what their work ethic is or like, that's yes, much- yes. To a degree, what, what we look for. And, and there's kind of two parts to this. Um, what we looked for early on, and we didn't really know until later that this was how you should do it anyway. Our, But our mentality was we want to partner with an artist that is going to be an artist regardless of whether they have us or any other label involved or not. And if we fi- we figured if we hitched our wagon to that type of an artist, we couldn't really lose because yeah. because you and, – and what I saw when I came down to – to Florida was you were going to be an artist at any cost. You were going to be a minister and you were going to preach the gospel. You're going to minister to kids at any cost. And that was the thing that was impressive to me outside of obviously the music that caught me initially. So I was like, but the interesting thing to that whole thing was your timing almost couldn't have been any worse (laughs) because The reason why was because at the very same time that I had gotten your demo, two days before that, I had gotten a demo. Me and Toby had gotten a demo from John Rubin. And we were like, oh, wait a second. This guy's, you know. And, of course, you and John Rubin are are almost polar opposites as far as personalities. And he's just crazy. And, I mean, you're crazy, too, but in a different way. But you know what I'm saying? He's he's really eccentric. And and so – we were like at a we were like at a quandary. We were like, okay, we've already got grits and we've got out of Eden. Those are two urban acts right there. And we didn't have a heck of a lot more than that. We had Johnny Q Public Christ Safari and um at the time, who else did we have? Maybe the Katinas. I think you told me you had Jennifer Knapp in a development deal or That's exactly what it, yeah. yes. a development deal. Both of those were in development. Yes, exactly. And so at the time we were like, Well, we don't need more rappers. And so I've got Toby on one end going, no, John Rubin's our guy. And then I've got, wait a second, we can't sign John Rubin. I've got this guy down in Florida. We need to, we need to check out. So we were, so the timing was horrible. And so I was like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Because especially after the Florida trip and seeing you do your shows, I was like, we've got to figure out a way to work with this guy. And so. Well, that's interesting because you, you guys are both, I'm assuming, equal partners and you have two of the yeah. partners are both committed to two different Correct. new artists. Basically, really, honestly, to be honest with you, KJ, 
it, it came down to us getting into a room, just the three of us voting on what we were going to do. And I came out on the short end of the stick. It wasn't that I didn't vote for John. It was right. just, I was really touched by what I got to, to experience with you. But Joey and Toby were on the John Rubin wagon. So I was like, all right, right. cool. So we, that's the, that's the way we resolved conflict was we just voted on it. It was a democracy. I was like, all right, cool. That's the way we got to go. So KJ's out. At that <laughs> gonna, time, I I'm had gonna, to figure out what to do. <laughs> I'm going to pause that for one second. I have literally a, a grumbling child that's – I'm just going to pick up and put in a baby Bjorn, and I'm going to look more ridiculous on this video. Just Hold wait. on. <laughs> pause for one second. All right. We're back. <laughs> All right, so let me, uh, let me pick up where I'm at. I'm currently holding a child on my chest in a full-blown Zach Galifianakis baby Bjorn. This is the <laughs> yes. reason why this is not a video podcast. Um, anyway, are you there? Okay. I, I just can't uh, look. So let's I can't go ahead and pick up where we're at. So you, um, if you can concentrate while staring at this okay. vi- visual, <laughs> as, as long as you don't stare. Now, he, will, he, he may spit cottage cheese at any moment now. But anyway... Um, long story short, um, so I basically get outvoted off goatee. Now I had no idea that any of this was going on at the time. I was still kind of, uh, I guess you say biding my time. Um, I remember at, you know, that's when I started to get a little frustrated because I felt like on one hand, everything moves super fast and then all of a sudden everything moves super slow and you came down mm-hmm. and you checked me out, um, and I think from that point forward, like you began to send me a, a track or two. So we started like to work mm-hmm. from an artistic standpoint. Cause at that point I had already had pretty much a finished product as seventh Avenue. Now, granted it wasn't what became the finished product that, that came out commercially, but you know, I had multiple songs done and yep. you started sending me a track or two. I remember we actually hooked up in Miami one time, uh, open, I opened up for the Katinas and, um, and that was also kind of a bit of my concern too. Was like I was like, am I going to vibe with this guy production wise? Because up to that point, I had kind of done everything on my own, and I knew that you obviously had been the producer guy. You know, I read liner notes and all the time, and you know, I knew you'd produced a lot of the the, the great yeah. stuff. And I thought, yep. you know, are we going to vibe or mesh from a production standpoint? Because obviously, that's like a marriage in a lot of ways. So. Uh, I felt like the, the vibe was nice, and again, you know, one one week drags into three weeks, drags into four weeks, which starts dragging into three, four months, and I think at the yes. time you had said, oh, maybe we were going to put you on a subsidiary label we were doing called SMLXL, and so I kind of felt like, man, here we go. This is exactly why I didn't tell anybody about this, <laughs> but at the same time, I still felt like I wasn't getting the blow-off treatment because I felt like I could, you know, I could still reach mm-hmm. you or I could still be like, you know, I, I was thinking it was longer than that, but it may have been six. But I was thinking I think, it was more man, like this eight or might nine. Have dragged on for almost six months, if I'm not mistaken. Well, the, the only reason I remember that the significant date is because mm-hmm. what had happened was sort of out of nowhere. You said, Hey, I'm coming down to Florida. And I remember this cause it was on my birthday. Uh, which would have been late June, and I remember thinking, "What a weird, what a weird coincidence that he's coming down on my yep. birthday to see me at this thing that was known back then called this convention. It was a Christian hip hop convention. It was at Downtown Disney, 
And you said, and I'm bringing two guys from a record label called Essential Records. And I thought, Essential Records? I'm like, that's like Jars of Clay and Third Day and like, there's nothing rap, hip-hop about Essential Records whatsoever. And you had basically said, look, Goatee's not going to sign you. We're not going to sign you. But they want to get into the, yeah. into the Christian hip-hop. They, feel like, they felt like hip-hop and boy bands were going to be the next big thing in Christian music. And I remember kind of at that point going, like, feeling sort of frustrated, but at the same time, like, thinking, you know, that's a really unselfish move. Like, you essentially could have, you could have wiped your hands and gone, well, we're not going to sign them, so peace out, have a nice life. You still sort of stayed in the corner of going, I can't do anything with this because I'm outvoted, but I'm going to pass it along to someone that will. Is that, I mean, that's, that's the way I took it. Is that kind of what happened? Yeah. My whole mentality at that point was, okay, you know what? We've, we've, I've been on the successful end of the decision-making processes where we get in a room and we vote. And I, and so I wasn't upset with that because that was the way it was. I was like, okay, you know what? I got outvoted. Cool. Now at this point, my mentality was, I really like this guy personally. I really vibed with this guy personally. Musically, it, it musically it didn't matter to me. Honestly, I was one of those guys that I didn't have to work with you musically if I really liked you as a person and believed in what you were doing. That was the case with 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 you. I was like, I really believed in what you were doing. I liked you as a person. I liked you as a man. I liked what your vision was and all that stuff. And I said, I've got to figure out a way to get this guy into his career, his vision, and, you know, help him somehow. I just wanted to try to help. And if something happened to where we could work together, that was just icing on the cake for me. So at that point, I was really good friends with Bob Waller and Robert Beeson, still am. And I said to those – and and – we spent a lot of time together because I was doing records for them on their label as well. And they, uh, they understood and got it. They understood the aspect of up and coming youth movement music. And they said, we see that you guys are doing a lot of urban stuff over goatee. We want to get into that. Can you help us? They literally elicited my help in trying to get into the urban scene, so to speak. And I was like, you know what? I've got the perfect guy for you guys to start with. Well, and, sorry, go ahead. I, just, I was just going to say, and, and, and th- at that point, they started getting really interested. So I said to them, I, I sent them your stuff, the stuff yeah. that I had. They went through it. Yeah, we like this guy. We think he's great. But, and I knew the, I knew the butt was coming. But we think he needs more commercial sounding songs. Can you help us get him to that point? That was where I kind of plugged back in because if you remember correctly, I was also working with John Rubin. Right. The the guy that I was producing his record and your record at the same time. Right. And having to keep both of them separate. But to me, it was not hard to keep separate because you guys were so different um, musically. So, so that was so so I had Bob Waller saying to me, "Hey, we need more commercial type songs for him. Can you do that or can you be involved or can you?" And I was like, "Of course I can. You know, I'll, I'll make it happen." Well, why why do you think in your opinion that Goatee went with Ruben over me? I mean, I should say specifically Toby or Joey. Because because his demo 
his demo struck a chord with Toby personally. To be honest with you, Toby had, even though we did things in, in, a, in a democratic perspective, Toby, if truth be known, Toby's, Toby's opinion held a little bit more weight than me and Joey. And we were okay with that. You know, because I mean, he was Toby's the golden child, man. Right. He's the he's the he's the guru. He everything he touches turns to gold, admittedly. Right. Yeah. And so he it really struck a chord. And I think Toby at the time really liked the 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 type of rap and urban stuff that didn't take themselves really seriously. And and John was just a clown. Yeah. And yeah. so he liked that. That was yeah. that was why. I think I, I don't know specifically, but I think that's that's. That's what I gathered from that whole thing. Well, it's it's interesting because you're 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 dead on because essentially me and John started on an equal footing, both on major labels, both white guys doing yeah. black art form, both literally produced more or less by the same producer, and he came out the gate and had a phenomenal debut more or less. You know, what I mean, mm-hmm. like essentially sold twice as many records as I did, twice as many doors opened up for him, twice, you know yep. what I mean, like, it was like, we even had the same booking agent, so I, like, I couldn't sit here and whine about, oh, he has more X, Y, Z, yeah. um, but I watched him with us both, you know, both starting at the same starting gate, I watched him obviously jump out way ahead of me, so far so that within, I want to say, three to six months of my record coming out, I was being dropped, yeah. By essential records. You know, so like yeah. my dream came true and was crashed as fast as it could. Yeah. <laughs> as, as but fast you know what, happened. though? What's interesting about that is what people may not know. And I don't know what you tell or don't tell. I don't look at that as your I don't look at that as your fault or I don't look at that as a as a uh, uh, a testament to the lack of art that you had for your record. I think your record. To this day, it sounds great. I think that record still sounds great. But I think it had a lot to do with timing from the parent companies and all that stuff. You know what I mean? Well, well, the main thing I kept getting back over and over was that I was too underground or too hip-hop or too non-appealing to the CCM market and that he was the opposite. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. He wasn't afraid to smile. He wasn't afraid to do a song of God is love. You know, like he was... You know, for all intents and purposes, even his imaging was very non-hip-hop, where I was like, I, and I, I talked about this on another podcast, but like, I remember getting very mad at you for like chopping my verse up in half. <laughs> yeah, because you were doing like 40, 40 bar verses. Right. Like, exactly. when is this thing going to ever Which end? I couldn't even count a verse. You know what I mean? Like, he'd be like 16 <laughs> bars. I'm like, uh, like 16 bars at like downtown bars, like alcoholic. <laughs> I don't know what a bar is. And uh, long story short, I, I just, even though I had, I had felt like I had gotten this pushback of basically the industry saying, on, on the Christian hip-hop side saying you, you sold out and went commercial with this major release, the market that they were marketing to me was basically going, you're too legitimate to the genre, we, we're going to go with John Rubin because he's more CCM, church-friendly, I hate to say it, even more white church-friendly. Yeah, and uh, I, you know it was a really tough time in my life because within that first year of of me having that record deal, you know, getting evicted from my apartment, getting my car repossessed, you know, going in debt ten thousand dollars 
and then turning around seeing you know John out with Toby opening up playing for five thousand people. Yeah. You know, and and basically feeling like you know what did I do wrong? You know where did I go wrong? Um, yeah, you felt and like then you literally, were you know having to rely on nothing more than than my calling because yeah. I hit the you know I hit the skids. I I literally ended up losing what I had left everything for. Yeah, and it was almost like you you were stepping up to the batter's box already with two strikes on you. Yeah. And um, it was, unfortunately, I just lost my monitor, so I can't hear a word Todd's saying. <laughs> I'm still recording you. Let me switch this out real quick. One second. Perspective. Somebody on the outside looking at it, it was almost like at that time you had... So are you there? Okay, much better. Yeah, what did you say? <laughs> Man, I lost again. I'll tell you what. Um, let me do this. I actually have to go ahead and jet. jet. Oh, no, there you are. Now I hear you. Okay. Um, I got this kid literally trying to eat the, the, re okay. the remote control uh, as we stand here. But I, I think we definitely need to do, do a part two. But the irony of the whole thing was that, and I just got to say this, and I think this is a great way to end the podcast. I definitely want to do a part two with you. But um, me getting dropped by the label and essentially losing my dream, essentially huh. going, you know, getting into really bad financial state. Um, and essentially becoming almost like a leper to the music industry where no one wanted to touch me. Uh, you were the only guy that really stayed in my corner and I have to really thank you for that all these years later. I know I've said this for you before, but you, in spite of what had happened to me was like, look, I know this didn't work out with your, with your label. I know this, uh, this kind of sucks, but I'll tell you what, uh, I will bankroll you going into the studio. I'll help produce stuff. I'll help you find yeah. another record deal. If you doesn't work out, I'm working on this thing called Beat Mart. And uh, that's my next thing up. And if we got to put it out, I'll put it out on my own label. And that, that was funny because that summer was the summer when I wrote Dear Slim. And I, I remember going in the studio and recording like 20 songs that, you know, I had no money. And you were you were cool enough to pay for the whole thing with with the recording and stuff. And so that was like my... Worst summer and best summer all at the same time. And it's funny how some out of your worst situations come some of the best, uh, the best art. So anyway, thank you so much, Todd, for hopping on here, man. I super appreciate it. Uh, I think we're going to definitely have to pick this up next week and, um, and do a part two for like maybe we could talk about. I, I honestly want you to go through the Pronounce 5-2 album with me because obviously that's like the seminal album that was to this day like my biggest seller and whatnot. So anyway, man. <laughs> Hey, this thanks. kid is wilding out. Hey, thanks for thanks both for, of you guys having me. It was great. <laughs> All right, bro. All right, man.